Welcome to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast with Simo Suahemo. This show is your backstage pass to discussions with world-class influencers in the field of health and high performance. We bring you the selected tips and insights that you can use to upgrade your life and become unstoppable. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Anastina Hintza, the COO of Hintza Performance, one of the leading organizations in the world in applying a holistic approach to high performance, one that's created very uncommon results in dominating entire fields and series of sports and uh, also excels in building around meaningful human experience. Welcome to the show, Anastina. Thanks. What's really interesting in the hints of performance, what you're personally bringing to the world is a focus on starting with your personal core and recognizing and clarifying your values and building your whole life to support the equation. And using that as a proven successful method of bringing the best out of exceptional world-class performers many of whom are household names in the sports world, including uh, record-breaking Formula One drivers like Mika Häkkinen and Fernando Alonso. How does this type of a holistic approach to performance instead of a, a one that's focused on incremental short-term and, and, and medium-term improvements, how does this type of a, a larger holistic method Uh, translate into someone who is not a professional F1 driver or a professional athlete, but rather uh, someone who is uh, looking for a performance edge and into building more meaning and more impact into the, their daily life. It's really, it actually does start from what you were talking about, the core. It's um, it's basically three questions that we ask from all of our clients, including including these high performers. We ask about their identity. Do you know who you are? But their purpose, do you know what you want? And finally, are you in control of your life? And uh, it is through sort of like a process of exploration of those themes uh, that we then start building kind of like the different blocks in their lives that actually matter. And it's it's interesting for how many of um, of some of the top performers even, it's the first time they stop to think about it. And that sort of like that that core is what we believe is the kind of the foundation of a long-term sustainable high performance even. For a lot of them, it is about performing. It's about performing under pressure even, but performing under pressure over a long period of time. And that's only possible when you have a sustainable foundation to build on. And that sustainable foundation, it actually starts from within. It starts from you. And it starts from sort of that internal, that sort of self-awareness. What is it that you actually care about? What is it that actually matters to you? What are your sort of like key strengths and values? And um, then what do you actually want to do about it? What What's the sort of like impact or driving force in your life? And for a lot of them, like at some point, like with these drivers, it's it's quite clear. It's um, we, we work a lot with Formula One and for them it is about being the world champion. Even for like the younger drivers, like from a very early age, that's that's their kind of key sort of purpose. But it's important that in addition to that purpose, they think about who they are. And it's not just the purpose that's driving them. If your identity is tied to just being a Formula One driver, what happens after your career? And it's sort of questions like that are that are actually quite easily translatable to to you and me. Absolutely. And uh, one of the key things that I've I've uh, witnessed firsthand when uh, going through 
a personal transformation and helping other people do the same is that there is no such thing as an overnight transformation. There are only more and less sustainable ways of, of building a new baseline in different areas of life. And I can, I can imagine that that's at the very core of what you've been seeing because many of the people you start working with, uh, with Hinsa Performance, are actually quite young when they're, when they're starting to work on these problems. Yeah, many of them are really young. We also work a lot with executives that are actually, you know, closing retirement. And for them, it's the equal thing. And yeah, it starts... But the questions don't change, do the, they? The questions don't change at all. I think we're actually quite lucky to be thinking about them right now at this age. Because many of our clients think about them first time, you know, when they are uh, closing retirement. And it is sort of like, yeah, it's actually even, even painful to watch sometimes. If, if that's the first point in life when you start thinking, oh, wow, that's... Have I actually been, you know, when you discover sort of uh, what it is that actually matters to you and then you think, reflect on your life and, and realize that maybe I haven't been actually living my life the way, the way I want it to or the, in accordance to those values, that's, it's, a, it's an uncomforting thought. It definitely is. And that's something that I've been also very much immersed in my own life and, and also that of my company and with, with Miko, my co-founder, who, who you met in London. And, and uh, we've been thinking about this a whole lot and how actual sustainable transformations can only come through recognizing your own values and noticing, calling your own bullshit in a way, noticing oh, where, yeah. the rubber, where the rubber actually hits the road, oh, whether yeah. or not you're living those values in your, in your daily life. Exactly, exactly. Calling your own bullshit. I really love that. I think it is about, <laughs> it is about being genuine to yourself. It is about being honest to yourself about, you know, where am I in terms of like in my life, in terms of the different elements in my life that are actually meaningful to me or that I actually care about. And uh, then it is about kind of being realistic about that too. So a lot of our, you know, when you when you do start that process and you do start thinking and you do recognize that, shit, maybe I'm not <laughs> doing as, as well as I, I wish I was. Then it is about like, okay, starting with small steps, as we all know. Like, I remember when I, I started that process, I was also sort of... Um, <laughs> I kind of wanted to turn things around overnight, <laughs> yeah, obviously. I wanted to create a program. I wanted a plan, a concrete plan, please. And um, yeah, we do have a plan, but the plan was nothing like I expected it to be. <laughs> it, was, it was actually, it was um, one of my biggest issues was, I mean, we also look at, you know, holistic health and well-being in terms of um, general health, physical activity, nutrition, mental energy, sleep and recovery, biomechanics. Exactly. And it's... Um, I mean, we looked at all those elements. My biggest issue at the time was sleep. And uh, I was expecting a you know, rigorous plan to change it. And I got one-minute breathing exercises before going to bed. <laughs> it was a disappointment. <laughs> I was so disappointed. I was like, this is, this is what, like, what is this? This is nothing. <laughs> and uh, it changed everything. <laughs> it completely changed my like The first two hours of my sleep were actually completely uh, disrupted. So I was, I had problems actually switching off. That was my issue. And my, my coach recognized that. And what he gave me was one minute breathing exercises. And, and through that, like one minute, which turned into five and 10, I was able to then kind of like, I gained two hours of sleep effectively. Cause I, I was, no, that's a payoff. <laughs> that's a payoff. And it was sort of like one of the key sort of, um, kind of counter arguments that we often get is that I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, I don't have time for this. Everyone has one minute before going to bed. And if you can get two hours for it, as in my case, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good ROI. Absolutely. That's the best investment you can make. Definitely. Now, one thing that I find really impressive 
is the scope of the work he do at his performance. The last nine World Drivers Championships in Formula One have been won by people who have been working with the Hinsa performance coaching methods. Uh, one of them is is uh, the legendary Formula One champion Mika Hakkinen, who was actually actually uh, speaking at a panel where also one of my teammates Inka was invited, and uh, Mika has been speaking extensively about the interconnectedness of the psychology and and the mental uh, game into and and bringing that into uh, racing performance. Uh, you work with athletes. Um, Uh, executives and other clients by starting from some of the most fundamental and important questions, their identity and values, and uh, what outcomes are they really after? And and after that, you only go and look at the outer sphere of physical activity, of nutrition, of recovery, mental energy, and so forth. So you start much, much deeper before exploring other building blocks and daily actions and the routines that most people associate with when we talk about health and well-being and, and high performance. And this is actually where, unfortunately, most programs get stuck in and uh, most po- programs focus in most heavily. And uh, they, in fact, ignore the critical questions of why and the critical questions of internal purpose. In fact, many other programs tend to start and end on the outer sphere. And I think that's a big problem. They look at performance on a very superficial level without really doing what I like to call the psychological heavy lifting in helping athletes really know themselves and in helping them identify and prioritize their own values and really discover what's driving them and why they really wake up in the morning. And your own journey also involves some extreme experiences in the world of endurance racing that have played a part in asking some deeper questions about what is meaningful to you. You've just completed your fifth ultramarathon race in Antarctica, which was 250 kilometers. That's a whopping 155 miles. And before that, you've raced in other extreme environments like the Atacama Desert and the Gobi Desert. So Antarctica was definitely one of the most challenging races mentally that I've ever done. Probably the most challenging one. And um, the kind of key reasons for that, you started every day by not really knowing for how long you have to go on. So every day we'd just keep on running until the weather didn't allow us to do so anymore. So it was we were basically like completely... It, it was just dependent on the weather. It could be two hours, it could be four hours... It could be 12 hours, and you just don't know. You just got to keep on running. And uh, that kind of uncertainty and not really knowing how to pace yourself, that was really tough mentally. (laughs) The other thing was that because of safety primarily and because of the location, we were running in in circles, (laughs) 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 like like literally in circles. And and, uh, like the the worst, uh, I'm sorry, not not the worst, well, the the most challenging day was a a 1.2 kilometer loop (laughs) up and down the iceberg (laughs) and uh, for um, 10, 10, 11 hours. That's a tight loop. That's, that's a really tight loop with 50 competitors. That's a really, really tight loop. <laughs> and uh, at some point during that sort of like probably around, I don't know, hour, it was maybe around like seven, eight hours that you start being like, really? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and um, oh, it, was, it was more than once that I questioned it. <laughs> and, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, I was sort of like, it's a moment where you, 
to overcome it, what you do is you just, you know, lift up your gaze from your feet, <laughs> look around, and uh, it was incredible. I mean, the the nature there was something you just can't can't imagine before you see it. It was sort of the I didn't know there exist so many shades of blue. <laughs> it was beautiful. The ice, the mountains, the the you know you you look around and you're like oh there are you know probably like a hundred penguins on that iceberg. You look around and there is a a whale <laughs> and it's sort of like and and just you know look around and appreciate where you are and that you are actually going through this unique experience that you'll probably never experience again. That was sort of uh, emerge yourself in. Uh, and the scenery it was it was beautiful the immersive nature of this is is something that i can totally relate to through my through my own ventures and climbing expeditions and i've always wondered if if there are other people who get these sorts of immersive experiences during these races this is your fifth race fifth ultra can you talk a bit about those i think that's the key reason why i do these anyway it's it's that sort of like what that's the feeling that you're looking for and um, so my first ultra I did um, in, in Jordan. And that was, to be honest, that the reason why I did it was primarily just because I needed a goal that I didn't know if I was going to make it through. <laughs> and, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was actually recovering from a burnout at the time. I, um, I was working as a management consultant before, and I, I love what I did. I worked a lot. And, uh, you know, I realized I was working too much <laughs> at some point. And... I realized also that I'm the type of person who needs a goal to actually then implement some of the things that I know I should be doing anyway. And that was, that was my goal. I was like, okay, this is, this is hard enough. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to survive the desert. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the first experience. But the experience there was during the first couple of days, you're, of course, you're kind of like going through your inbox. <laughs> you're going through your sort of like, yeah, I should probably do that and that and that. Then you start thinking about things like um, like relationships, you know, the people in your lives. And uh, I remember being like, oh, I should talk to my mother about that. <laughs> and it was sort of like, you start thinking about the people that, you know, you realize maybe, you know, I haven't been in, in touch with these people enough. Like, you know, I wonder how he or she's doing. And it was sort of like, you start having having thoughts that you don't have the time to think about in your kind of ordinary life. <laughs> and uh, that was sort of like, you know, day two, <laughs> day three. And then at some point you start thinking about yourself. And you start thinking about like, you know, so I haven't been in touch with these people. Why? You know, what are the things that really matter to me? You know, what are some of like the, the key values? What are my like key values? Uh, it's sort of um, at, at hints of my current job, what we ask uh, are the three questions my father uh, asked, used to ask people are sort of, do you know who you are? Do you know what you want? And are you in control of your life? And those were just sort of, sort of things that you start thinking about. So like, who am I really? And um, you start going through that process. And then at some point you sort of like run out of thoughts. And then it, it, it just becomes really sort of like you become acutely aware of your surroundings of kind of the sand beneath your feet, uh, of sort of, uh, oh, that tree, oh, a bird. And, and especially in the desert where there is not really much out there. And uh, during the races, they're kind of, they're small races. There are not that many people. And you spread out through like 40 to 90K. So it's like, you don't, there are a lot of times when you just don't see anyone. 
for for the longest time and you're just completely alone in this vast emptiness and it's it's beautiful it's really really beautiful you feel like you're part of something bigger and you also realize how small you are and i actually quite like that feeling it feels liberating in a sense i can definitely appreciate that feeling in fact i found that to be or those kinds of experiences for me personally to be the the context at which i i feel like i get to know myself the best and get to peel off some of the layers of the onion that are kind of cushioned by everyday reality and everyday pursuits as a as an as an entrepreneur or many a players uh listening to this discussion will can relate to the fact that you're a person with high drive to achievement uh and a, and a high pain tolerance and and uh Often there are not that many places or contexts to contemplate on what really matters and and to really get to the bottom of your values. What do you think about these experiences in terms of uh, sharing these with the world? Because not that many people can relate to these kinds of extreme endurance pursuits. Are there any ways for you personally to explore these states to get to the bottom of yourself in everyday life? That's a really great question. And and you know, one of the questions I most often get asked is like why on earth would you do this? And for me it is exactly like you were saying. It's it's my chance to, you know, stop and reflect. The question is do I really need to go to a desert and run 250 kilometers to stop and reflect? Is that the only way? <laughs> like would there be potentially an easier and maybe even cheaper alternative? Yeah. An alternative way to do it. And uh Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's absolutely necessary that we find those moments and also in our everyday life. I think the challenge is that it's it's not easy. It's much easier to sort of like stop and reflect in in an environment like like that where you're kind of like completely detached from your from your work and from your responsibilities and from also it's not just responsibility it's like it's off for for many of us it's our passion exactly like what we what we do it's not because of like responsibility and duty it's it's because we love what we do and we're like deeply passionate about what we do and it's it's not negative it's positive on the contrary it's extremely positive and uh the challenge is that that can also be dangerous <laughs> if we if we don't ever kind of detach ourselves from it i think for me sort of um The good thing with about with um, ultra <laughs> ultra endurance is that it requires you also to take those moments um, every week. I have to run. <laughs> I have to get out. I have to sort of spend time by myself uh, quite a bit every day. I still like the nature. I I, I need the kind of I need the outdoors. <laughs> Or for me, that's that's my place where I I get the chance to kind of stop and reflect. I, it takes time though. Like for me, it takes a little bit of, little bit of time and sort of conscious reflection. I mean, a lot of people do meditation I, uh, nowadays, um, and I, I actually think that that is a great way of, sort of maybe uh, instead of spending two days in a desert, <laughs> taking <laughs> take, in order to get to a point where you're like maybe able to, to kind of uh, feel that state of not really thinking about anything. I mean, meditation is a, is basically the same thing, but you just don't need to spend two days. You spend 20 minutes. It is something that I do personally practice. Um, let's be honest; I don't do it every day. <laughs> I'm sure none of us really do, even even uh, regardless of, of our best efforts. <laughs> regardless of our best efforts, um, well, yeah, not perfect at all. So I don't do it every day, but I do. I do try to do it every week, and and that for me right now is is sort of uh, 
it's a it's something to kind of complement that running experience. But for me, yeah, running running really is the thing that really helps me to disconnect. It's uh, I also have a dog, <laughs> and and running with my dog definitely helps me disconnect because if I focus on anything else but him, <laughs> he'll not behave so well <laughs> so, <laughs> he will protest he will protest uh so it's uh it, it's a really great way to <laughs> so am i wrong to say that you've actually built these kinds of supportive structures supportive habits into your life to make sure that you actually do take time for this process on the regular your dog and uh, the ultra goals definitely sound like elements that will certainly make sure that you'll take time for the right things It's an enforcement mechanism, <laughs> and uh, it's what works for me. And and I think it's important for people to kind of like find whatever works for you. And it's it's sort of like it's not something that's gonna suit everyone. Definitely not. I actually think more people, most people, would actually be able to do it. Most people are capable of doing things that they thought they wouldn't be able to do. Like seriously, I was definitely not sure if I was gonna make it out as the first one. I I was not sure at all. But it's in the end, it's much more about that mental strength than, than physical, which is a bit counterintuitive because you think like, oh, oh my god, it's such a, it's like five, five, six marathons, six marathons. It's crazy. You can't do it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's six marathons. But like after thirty k, it's pretty much in your head. <laughs> so it's it's like, yeah, it's 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 much more in your head, and it's much more about like what you think you're capable of doing. And what you think you're not capable of doing, so it is something that many more people could do if they chose to. But it's, of course, it's not for everyone. For like, you know, I think it's just, yeah. For me, it's been it's been the ultras. It's been my <laughs> it's been my dog. Honestly, it's been sort of like maybe building a bit of that kind of routine. So realistically, I'm working on I'm I'm practicing meditation. So it's it's something that I don't do every day yet i do it i do it once a week i try the kind of like every day i went on like weekend courses and whatnot and i freaked out <laughs> it was too much it was a goal that was way too way too high for me i had you have to start step by step and for me the first step has been like once a week that's it yeah that thought really resonates with me and uh, what has personally helped me a lot has been to understand that the act of meditation is actually noticing that your mind has wandered and still coming back to the breath and embracing yourself with loving kindness while doing that <laughs> instead of becoming frustrated for having drifted <laughs> understanding the role of meditation not as something you need to be good at not as a source of additional stress on top of everything else uh, but rather a moment when you're deeply aware of your Uh, shortcomings and and deeply accepting of those shortcomings that including the shortcomings in your practice but also as a human being the opposite of course being uh, forcing another routine <laughs> on top of your already entirely crowded to-do list and <laughs> life and i'm personally guilty of falling into this That's exactly what I did. <laughs> so I, I, I was like, meditation. I need to do this. Exactly. That's that's pretty much exactly how I did it. And it was sort of. It's. I think there's so many similarities between meditation and and, and ultra endurance actually, because ultra endurance is also like you can't go there thinking that I'm gonna run this at you know you know whatever pace you're running your marathon, or I'm gonna run this at X pace, because you never know what's gonna happen. The weather changes, kind of like you never know how the course is going to be exactly. You never know how your feet will be. You never know how you're kind of 
stomach will hold up. It, it, there are like so many different factors. You never know if you run into someone who's in trouble. And it's sort of like there's so many factors uh, involved in that. And then environments are so, I mean, they're beautiful and gorgeous, but they're also very extreme. So there's there's no way you can control it. And accepting that is, is something that I find very similar to meditation. I mean, there's not, uh, you have to be kind to yourself and you have to be kind of accepting of that imperfection. It's not going to be a perfect perfect race at you know pace x it's it's something that you just need to adjust to exactly and i feel that that goes for our everyday lives at scale as well i feel like uh there's a lesson here for uh, anyone who appreciates and is driven by not only the external but the internal rewards of the process that come through hardship accepting the hiccups during the journey as part of it, rather than by trying to minimize those by uh, programming your everyday existence to the T. I feel that's a message we definitely need to get out there. And uh, what really fascinates me about your story is the personal transformation that you've gone through. Like me, you've uh, also spent part of your childhood in Africa. I lived in Zimbabwe for some time, and uh, you spent some time with your family in Ethiopia. What did that time look like and how did that shape you? Ethiopia is probably where my heart still is. <laughs> I it's it's like it's a yeah, it's a really special place to me. It's so we moved there when I was I think about 3. And uh so my parents were um my father was actually a missionary doctor and my mother was a teacher and we they took three young girls. I was three, my sisters were two, and um, my younger sister wasn't even one year old. And we moved in the middle of the jungle, <laughs> and uh, in the middle of a civil war, actually, <laughs> which was a guerrilla war. Yeah, that's that's something I didn't realize at the time. <laughs> I actually, for me, it was like the most beautiful childhood ever. But actually, it was a really, really brave decision that my parents made at the time. It was definitely a bit. Um, I don't. I didn't. I never felt unsafe ever. I mean, we were sleeping next to the windows to avoid bullets and... Uh, to avoid bullets? Yeah. Wow. Like, as in, if, if there was a shooting outdoors? Yeah, so sometimes there would be something and, you know, we would have, like, bullet. Like, sometimes there would be, like, bullets on our roof or something and, and my dad would tell me it's a bookshelf that fell or monkeys throwing coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Uh, and as a child, you're like, okay, let's go back to sleep. And it's... Um, I never, ever felt unsafe. I mean, we were obviously, I mean, we were evacuated at times and it was sort of like uh, with hindsight and as an adult, I'm sort of thinking like, would I take three blonde girls to the middle of a civil war in Africa? <laughs> um, I would think about it. <laughs> but, but For I most think, people, that might be a no, unless you have a specifically a strong, strong calling. Of, of a very, very strong calling to help. And that's something I think, uh, I think has shaped me the most. And I get it from both my parents. They had an extremely, extremely strong calling to help people. And um, my father was actually training uh, Ethiopian surgeons. He had a clinic in Sheve that he was leading. And it, what he did was, I've only heard about it later on, obviously, but it was, it, it has been extremely inspiring. Same goes for my mother. And it was that sort of, uh, the decisions that they took and uh, <laughs> the childhood that we got to live, and especially understanding it now as an adult, I'm... I'm just extremely grateful. It was sort of like it gave, it has given me um, a perspective that I don't think I would otherwise have. And I think like the kind of deepest sort of uh, feeling that it has installed in me is, is gratitude. I'm, I'm just extremely grateful for, for what I have now 
for what I'm able to do now or for what I am sort of able to experience now, what I'm able to talk about right now, the people I get to meet. But then also that like, yeah, that, that whole experience was something that definitely gives you perspective. I'm sure. And uh, there's an element to it that, that I'm sure that you've only had the chance of, of kind of uh, analyzing later in life like how these experiences have, have shaped your view of the world and, and uh, indeed from a larger perspective, what it means to serve people and what it means to give a gift that, that not many people are. And also what you learn from them. I exactly. think that, that's even like a bigger thing. So like, you know, a lot of times, you know, <laughs> it is funny, like we talk about it and it's, it's even kind of like a cliche that, you know, you go there and people are happy, but you are. And, and, and they're happy with much, much less. <laughs> and that's sort of like that, it goes back to being being grateful. There is a kind of, yeah, a a sort of very deep feeling of happiness and content. And uh, yeah, I, I I'm not really even sure how to explain it, but it, that that joy is very sort of uh, explicit and evident and strong and visible in their everyday life. And also, what I feel one of the great lessons there is that. Uh, Many of the, the core components of, of a daily meaningful experience start from community. Yeah. And in fact, our, it, it seems like our, our, our kind of a Western abundance has in fact disconnected us from each other to a great extent, which is the polar opposite of, of life in so many other cultures where you have to be part of a community to survive. I think that's the point. So, like, there is no way these people would, you know, your family is, is extremely important because there is no other safety net. I, I think there is also that sort of, like, you're just, you're reliant on each other. You need each other. And, and that's why it's sort of, like, you, you do get this sort of, like, deeper connection and sense of community, which then is, is actually, like you said, it, it, it's part of that sort of... Uh, yeah, what then gives you meaning. And uh, one thing that's a very particularly interesting part of your own story is, is the uh, kind of a transformation into, into the track that you're, you're now applying through your own experiences with hardships, including that of a burnout. So can you, can you please explain how that has kind of shaped your current ability to help others, especially people with a tendency of getting way immersed into high performance yeah that's it's really yeah it has definitely shaped me and it was definitely an experience that i i've been wondering like do we really all have to go through that <laughs> to learn <laughs> like why, why do we all have to go through that same sort of like same story but yeah so i was like from ethiopia we came back and i actually i ended up working for a management consultancy um, a global management consultancy which I actually really really loved um, it was sort of what gave me meaning. And, and not, most people would not associate meaning with uh, management consulting, maybe. But for me, it actually was. I was working mostly with um, uh, developing economies. I was working in the public sector, social sector. I was doing things like calculating the economic value of peace in conflict zones um, as a part of like a peace negotiation process. Wow. And it was sort of like the kind of topics that we worked on, the kind of work that we were doing was just incredibly meaningful. And uh, interesting. And the people you get to work with are intelligent. And the clients you have are like prime ministers of XYZ. <laughs> and it was sort of like you were feeling like you really have one of my core values is actually impact. And, and I really it's, it's something I strive towards. It's something that that drives me. And uh, I was really feeling like I was having an impact. And um, it's that sort of like 
I think for for many of of us, it's that kind of overuse of passion, <laughs> like obsessive passion, even that, that obsessive kind of, passion. Yeah, I think that's a term that we've been um, talking about later, earlier on, and it's it's that yeah, that's obsessive passion that's actually what causes us to burn out eventually. It's it's not sort of like your boss forcing you to work over time or negative stress or something like, well, negative stress eventually, yeah. But but it's not like someone's forcing you to do something and, and you're just like overburdened with uh, responsibilities or whatnot. It's, it's because you love what you're doing. Nobody forces you to do it. You just love it. And you, you're probably even good at it. And probably you also have like a higher tolerance for pain, uh, like a higher pain threshold. And it's, it's the combination of those things, like combination of your kind of like your overuse of your strengths and that obsessive passion and that sort of like higher pain threshold that then maybe causes you to crash and burn in a way that's not, yeah. And you fall, you fall from higher up basically. And, um, Yeah. The fall can be actually quite hard for me. It was actually very physical. So, very physical. Yeah, I um, like literally my the the moment I realized I had gone too far was um, I was working on a project and on three different continents, and it was a November morning. I was uh, rushing through the stairs to catch a taxi in my Helsinki apartment, and I I fell down the stairs. I fainted. I lost my consciousness. You blacked out suddenly. I blacked out suddenly. I was running down the stairs. I literally rolled down the staircase. Whoa! <laughs> woke up at the bottom of it. <laughs> I, I, I like woke up. I noticed like you know my head's bleeding, and uh, my first thought was, "Oh my god, where's my laptop?" <laughs> and then I'm like, "It was that was the first thought." And then I'm like, Shh, "I need help. <laughs> like this is this is this is not good." That's what kind of scared me. Like instead of thinking of like like you know, I should probably see a doctor. I was I was more concerned with my laptop. So I, I ended up obviously seeking help, and it was um, I think there were a few things that contributed to me then kind of bouncing bouncing back from it. One of the things was my father. I, I wasn't really conscious of using any sort of like hints of philosophies or methodologies. Um, I, we just had a chat, and uh, he did start by actually asking me those three questions: like, do you know who you are, and do you know what you want? And uh, do you feel like you're in control? And my answer to everything was like, no, no. <laughs> and, uh, and no. <laughs> and it was sort of like, that's a bingo. That's a bingo. And it was, it did like force me to reflect. Um, I had joined the company for certain reasons. And um, I actually ended up doing, yeah, some of that, but then also something else that I didn't find sort of as as meaningful and I had kind of like you know taken a path that was interesting in the beginning but then turned out to be maybe something that I was like wait wait a minute this is this is not what I thought I would be doing this is not what I thought I you know this is not what I really wanted to do in the beginning and I just kind of had gone there so that was one thing I had to go back to thinking about like so what are the things that really matter to me like Starting with with relationships, starting with my family. It's really sad, but at the time I was really seeing my my boyfriend at the time, mostly when he was asleep. I would get back home from work and he would already be asleep. And I would wake up before he did to go back to go to work again. And it was sort of like, not really, if you tell someone you love them and uh, they're an important person in your life and you see them mostly when they're sleeping, it's 
not really a great sign. You can tell yourself whatever you want, but that's, that's not really a relationship. I was also sort of like not really spending time with my family. I realized I hadn't called my mother in probably three months. It was sort of like, that's, it's not who you want to be. And also that sort of like that core value of impact. Yeah, I was having impact, but was I having an impact on things I really wanted to? And it was sort of, um, I, I had joined, um, <laughs> I literally actually joined uh, the company after I had worked in the central bank in Finland where I, I was responsible for Greece, economic forecasting for Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain in 2010. Wow. <laughs> and it didn't really go that well. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, um, it was not very... It was not very motivating to forecast the economic progress for those countries at the time. And I, I realized that I didn't want to be forecasting like every single curve going the wrong direction. I wanted to be doing something about it. And that it goes again back to impact. It was and it was sort of it was the reason why I joined that company, the the management consultancy, and it was what I got to got to do eventually like in the beginning. But then, you know, things happen and you end up doing other things and, and suddenly you realize that well, this is really cool. It's not really who I am. It's not really what I find meaning and what I find sort of uh, what inspires me, what drives me, and what I want to have an impact on. And uh, I took a really conscious decision, actually, at the time. I kind of shifted career paths within the company, and I started focusing on public sector, on social sector, on economic development. And it was the fact that, you know, it was my father asking the question, but then it was also obviously the, the company that supported me in that which was hugely important. I think that's something that employers, also actually startup <laughs> startups, I mean, we have to think about as, as em, employers, we have to think about it. Like, how can we help people kind of like do things that matter to them? And that was sort of like something that, that really was a huge contributor in my recovery. I really like what you said there. How can we as employers and as movements help our people make a meaningful impact on the world and uh, help other people in meaningful ways and how there's an element of responsibility, but also a huge upside of, of positive power and positive impact that can be created through that kind of an outlet. Because I feel, and I've witnessed that people who feel that they're making an impact and that that impact is aligned with their own values. I've uh, seen that that that's an, unstoppable force really those those people are unstoppable force absolutely and i think that's sort of like that is so it's, re it's really inspiring it's really really inspiring and that was sort of like i i love that we're talking about these things now and it's sort of like yeah i i think there is a generation now that is looking at this a little bit differently it's not just about like you know keeping your investors happy <laughs> it's about something else something a bit bigger what were some of the changes that you made in addition to recognizing the meaningfulness and the direction of of the change and the impact that you were bringing out to the world so that was the number one thing and i think like the biggest change really happened in my head but then obviously there were sort of other things that i had to go through i mean the last question about control and, and my like sort of lack of control maybe there are actually two sides to it there are things you can control and there are things you can't control And I think that's also important to recognize. You know, there will be things that you just you just can't control. And then it's important to be able to let go. <laughs> recognize that, you know, this is not something I can influence or impact. And then don't stress about it. <laughs> like, just let it be. And then there were surprisingly many things that you actually can control. Like once you start questioning. 
So you oftentimes take it like for granted that, you know, my boss sends me an email at 7 p.m. and uh, or my manager at the time sends me an email at 7 p.m. And I obviously think that I need to, you know, reply and, and do this thing by tomorrow morning. You never even asked if the deadline is tomorrow morning or if it's okay that I do this tomorrow morning and, and I give it to you by lunch. And it probably would have been totally okay. <laughs> I just never asked. Mm. A lot of the things I was actually just imposing on myself, thinking that this is, this is the way it is without ever questioning it. Or the client, client really needs this by tomorrow. Actually, maybe it would be better that we only returned it you know, the day after tomorrow or maybe on Friday so that... So that the client actually has also time to process and, and, you know, be part of the change and the journey and the discussion as opposed to us, like, turning things overnight and <laughs> delivering them in the morning. That type of sort of questioning and, and learnings were things that I, I started. It's sort of like that was sort of a prerequisite for me then to be able to make some actually concrete changes, like, you know, making sure that I have at least uh, one or two nights off per week during the work week, which was not a given at all. It sounds horrible to some people, but I think a lot of people will also recognize that it's, it's quite, quite normal. Horrible thing to say. <laughs> uh, then there is, um, there were sort of like, what I actually realized was the most important thing for me was to keep my mornings sacred. Keep your mornings sacred? Sacred. Uh, it was sort of like from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. I, I don't want any meetings. I don't, I don't want to talk to people really. <laughs> So that's my time. So I, what I would do during those mornings would I would go for a run. And it was a great thing, by the way. So that first ultra was really my enforcing me mechanism. I had to run. I had to get back in shape. Otherwise, it wouldn't have. It just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so it was sort of like I knew I had to do my morning run. And that was a great for, way for me to actually, you know, the first thing I did in the morning was no longer, you know, check my email. It was actually, you know, put on my gear and get out. And it was sort of uh, that routine kind of had a cascading effect it would mean that i come back and i have breakfast because i'm hungry <laughs> and it was sort of like it was a it made my mornings much more sort of quiet and uh peaceful and then i just made it like a pretty strict rule it's a huge temptation to you know get on that email and you know open your laptop while you're, while you're eating breakfast or you know schedule calls at 8 a.m because the next chance will be at 4 p.m and and it's sort of like it's a really, really huge temptation, which is why I started using the word sacred. It might be the wrong use of the word term at, the, at that point. For, but for me, mornings are sacred. I don't want to do meetings. I don't want to do email. It's, it's my time. It's the time I take for myself because I never know what's going to happen during the day. That was my learning for, in particular in that job. Like mm -hmm. anything can happen during the day and your evenings might be, you may need to sacrifice your evening for whatever reason. Uh, but my mornings, I didn't give up. I love getting this message out to the world. What are some of the key questions or um, key pieces of advice that you would have loved to send back in time to your 20-year-old self, having now gone through the experience and uh, finding and recognizing the core pieces of the puzzle yourself? So, I mean, obviously, it would have been great to start thinking about kind of the deeper questions beforehand. I think that would have actually been like the kind of deeper sort of motivation and, and the time to kind of like stop and reflect about those questions that we were talking about earlier. That's that what I think I really would have needed. But I think also like other things that <laughs> if I think about my former self and even my, my self right now, <laughs> to be very honest, it is also about sort of like the short term gains. And it is about your kind of short, your performance right now. 
which matters. And um, I think if I had understood at the time what kind of an impact my lifestyle and my work style was having on my performance, or the cost of that performance, actually, both, um, I, I probably would have thought about things differently. Like if I had been aware of like, okay, what's the impact of my 4.3 hours of sleep per night on average? Wow. I found my Fitbit. I destroyed the evidence very quickly. <laughs> so it was, uh, no, it was horrible. I was, I was sleeping 4.3 hours a night. I was at the worst times. I was uh, definitely not exercising. I was eating mostly what I found out of minibars. Um, Snickers was the best option. <laughs> it was the best option? <laughs> yeah. And it was, it, it was, yeah, definitely not a very healthy lifestyle. And, you know, barely able to walk up the stairs, like getting tired walking up the stairs. I used to run marathons. It was, it was not me. But if I had been aware of, like, I, I was ready at that point in life, I was ready to sacrifice my health because it was very evident to me. I was ready to sacrifice my health uh, for, for the outcomes that I was getting at work. But had I actually understood that my health was having an impact on those outcomes, on the quality of my output, maybe I would have thought about things differently. And it's, it's not a nice thought because it's not very like internal, but it was, it was something that probably would have actually stopped me at the time. Because it was sort of like, actually one thing that kind of like got me thinking, which my, which my father, or actually one of the sleep experts from his firm told me at the time, was that sleeping six hours a night for two weeks in a row has an impact on your performance, which is equivalent to staying up for 24 hours wow. straight. There's a straight-up cognitive decline, and you're basically performing like as if you were drunk because of the cumulative sleep depth. And that was uh, that graph that he showed. Um, my first reaction was sort of like, "Yeah, but that's not me. <laughs> you know, I'm doing okay. Look at my reviews, and you know, I just got promoted. I'm fine." And his response was, "You know, next slide," <laughs> which was <laughs> which was the same people who were like. And their self-rated performance, which was like for the first couple of days, they noticed a decline. But after that, it just plateaued. They're like, yeah. It just plateaued? Yeah, it plateaued. Mm. So what happens is your brain gets used to it. You get sort of like, you get used to that sort of suboptimal cognitive performance. And you get used to kind of thinking foggy. And it was sort of like, that was sort of like, okay. And uh, honestly, like after a couple of nights of good sleep, you do think a little bit clearer. I mean, like, just try it out. Try for a week. Try and get, like, 79 hours for a week. And you will notice, like, the difference. It's, everything is just a little bit easier, more logical, more clear. Um, you're just thinking a bit faster. <laughs> and it, it's sort of like, yeah, it's that. Had I kind of, like, understood that link, and not just, you know, obviously it's not just sleep. It's about kind of, like, how you structure your day and your rhythm during your day. It's about, like... It's also about exercise. It's about taking those breaks and that ideal time for your brain. It's about what you eat. And it's, it's all of those things combined, obviously. Um, and, and they have an impact on your health. But had I understood, and that what I was at the point in time, I was ready to sacrifice. But had I understood that they also have an impact, a direct impact on my performance, I think that would have got me thinking. And that, I feel, is something that so many of us on a knowledge level recognize and, and kind of understand, but haven't fully internalized and integrated into our daily lives because we, we don't really um, always pay the due focus on getting proper sleep, eating properly, uh, de-stressing properly, recovering properly, and in a general way, building our lives in a sustainable format rather than optimizing short to midterm outcomes. Yeah, because we're okay. That's the thing. Because we're still performing. We're still performing. We're still sort of like, 
you know, I think that's the kind of danger. We're still doing okay. But I think the question is not just, you know, yeah, the question is sort of like, could you be doing, you pro, are you actually performing at, at the level that you could be performing? That's one question. The other question is, how much are you paying for it? And that's sort of like in terms of your health, but also in terms of things that, if you go back to the, those core questions, in terms of the things that actually matter to you, in terms of your, you know, family, in terms of your friends, in terms of, you know, the you know, core relationships, in terms of taking time for yourself to get to know yourself. It's sort of, what's the price you're paying? At what cost are you doing this? Because then, unfortunately, for, for many of us, like, if we keep on going at that kind of, like, at that maximum, I mean, it would be the same as if an athlete were all the time training at high intensity. And I guess no one does that. That's a, a certain way of destroying yourself. Exactly. So at some point, you'll just crash and burn. Plus, you're not really getting best results because like, what actually happens is that you know, super compensation happens after rest. It's, athletes know that. Maybe we should learn something from them. Absolutely. And that's a challenge for all of us. And uh, I'm really happy that this is the discussion that we're having on a wider scale as well instead of the tactical and the tool levels of performance and output that so much of the discussion has um, thus far been focused on. Because as we know, none of that really matters and none of that is sustainable unless it's based on a deep understanding of your core, a deep understanding of your personal values and aligning your passion and your skills and your output and, and the mark you're leaving on the world accordingly. Thank you so much, Anastina, for coming on the show. This has been a truly amazing talk, and I, I really hope we can expand on this in a further session sometime soon. I hope so, too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast. Please check out the links, show notes, and other episodes at amberknight.com slash podcast. That's A-M-B-R-O-N-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. Thanks again, and catch you in the next episode.